What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our first State of the Vote episode. We're going to carve out some time for you each week to update you on the national political map as voting begins to take off in this election. This election is unlike any other in history because of the record number of ballots that are being cast by mail. So, although we're conditioned to think that Election Day is a one-time event that happens on one day of the year, this election is happening right now, and it will continue until and through election night. So back by popular demand, we have Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. Mike, thanks for being on today. I don't know how popular, but thanks for having me. (laughs) And making his debut on the Lincoln Project podcast, we also have Lincoln Project political director, Zach Tchaikovsky. Zach, welcome to the pod. Ron, thanks so much for having me on. Mike, let's kick this episode off by expanding on why we're talking about the state of the vote, as we're calling it, and not the state of the race. It's important because, well, there's two reasons, really. The first is, as you uh, just mentioned in the intro, the vote is happening now, and we're really in an election month as opposed to an election day. And we've been you know, habituated as Americans to kind of look for that 8 p.m. close of ballots you know, in the East Coast uh, or with whatever time you're in, time zone you're in, and then do a count and then kind of either pop champagne or walk home defeated knowing who's going to take over uh, power the next day in whatever office. And the reality is with so many mail-in ballots, we are, we are already voting in a number of key states, and we will be voting through the course of election night. And the dynamics of what is happening with who votes by mail and who votes on election day are very different. And so it's important to assess and analyze what is happening literally every day, at least we do in a war room in a campaign. Uh, to adjust strategy, mm-hmm. to make different decisions on our spending, mm-hmm. on our messaging, our focus, and that's what we want to talk about. Okay, so let's dig in to, first of all, the number of absentee ballots and mail-in ballots that we're seeing this election versus previous elections. So, Zach, maybe you can give us an idea of what we mean when we say record numbers. So one of the, the biggest changes that we've seen is that many states have, that were previously to write in and explain why you're voting by mail are now no-fault absentee states, which means that anybody can get an absentee ballot for any reason. Uh, They just have to put in a request. They don't have to write an explanation. So in North Carolina, for example, uh, we are currently 17 times ahead of where we were in 2016 in terms of the number of requests that have been made. So this is like nothing that we've ever seen. And if you remember on election night in 2018, there were a lot of folks that were on TV saying the blue wave was a blue trickle. But as the absentee ballots came in, uh, famously, it became a blue wave. We are going to see that on steroids in 2020 because the number of absentee ballots is so much greater, but also the composition of who's requesting mm-hmm. ballots is so much different. Mm-hmm. Previously, it was pretty much a relatively even split. Now it's skewing much, much more heavily Democratic. 
Um, and that's going to lead to some some interesting scenarios, which maybe Ron or Mike want to talk through. Well, before we go there, you mentioned North Carolina, and I know we're going to get to North Carolina later on in this episode because that's the state, the first state to come online in terms of mailing out absentee vo- ballots to voters. Are we also seeing the same record number of requests across the board? It varies state by state, but in pretty much every state that is not all absentee ballots, you are seeing a significantly higher number. North Carolina is a particularly high case. Um, but we're seeing similar things in, in states across the country, particularly okay. the swings. Okay. And it's not just a break in the overall number of requests. There's a clear partisan advantage for the Democrats by a wide margin. And again, we'll talk about some of the state-by-state specifics. Yeah. But there's no question that the demographics of who is energized and who is going to be voting by mail mm-hmm. um, is feeling a very strong push to show up and vote. Okay. Now, also before we dig into the specifics, Mike, you've done this previously on but the town hall and I think probably once on the podcast, but just so we can set the table for our listeners, why does it matter that the vote is happening now and how are ballots going to be counted differently this year? And how are we going, what are we going to see going into election day um, as states count these ballots differently, what are we looking for? Sure. So there's a lot of there's been a lot of discussion in the media out of the White House and with uh, the challenger Joe Biden's campaign about voting and voting by mail. We've been hearing a lot about the mail service, and of all of this, of course, influences voter behavior. What we have seen is, to a very uh, historic and marked degree, amongst Democrats, an increasing tendency to vote by mail. It's also a reflection of overall societal trends, right? People are more mobile. People who are at the lower income levels, for example, of the economy, a single mom with two kids can't probably take off time on a Tuesday in November to go and vote, so they request an absentee ballot. COVID also has allowed for greater expansion of the use of voting by mail. Most of the constituencies that are increasingly voting by mail are Democratic constituencies. That's important. Because at the same time, Donald Trump and the president's uh, campaign has been messaging about the um, lack of security and safety with voting by mail. And polling is showing by a wide margin that only about 20% of Republicans are going to be voting by mail. Most of them are going to be showing up on the day of vote. We call it the day of, which means they show up on the day of the election, November 3rd. So sorry, I'll try to Mm -hmm. stop using the day of terminology. Sure. Yep. So what you're going to have is basically two different constituencies voting two different ways, at least from a partisan construct. And we know that partisanship is the key indicator on how you're going to vote. Republicans are going to vote on election day. Democrats overwhelmingly will vote by mail. And as that happens, the processes matters for the states and how they count. Mm -hmm. So we will begin mailing in ballots. Some ballots have already been cast in North Carolina and some of the early voting states. Those ballots, by and large, with few exceptions, are set aside at the county government center put in locked, safe, secure facilities, and they simply wait. They wait until that they can be processed and or counted. And those are two different things. Processing is different than counting. But nobody counts prior to election night. Some states, however, process. I'll get to that in a second. So ballots close at 8 p.m. The high school gym or the local you know, church or wherever the gathering place is for votes are then locked and secured at 8 p.m., Those ballot boxes are uh, securely taken to the county government center, and the county uh, government center and their staff begin to immediately process those votes. So the early count reflects the day of vote, those votes that are cast in person of people walking in on November 3rd, and the first counts, the first few hours after ballots close, will disproportionately overrepresent Republicans. And so you will see Donald Trump and all the Republicans on the ballot 
at their highest vote counts towards the end of the day of vote. Now, we also at the County Government Center begin to start either counting or processing the mail-in ballot votes. Mm -hmm. And as those votes are counted, and they're usually done after the day of votes because it's simply easier and it's a more labor-intensive process of processing the mail-in ballot vote. I want to pause you right there and explain what you mean by it's a more labor-intensive process because there's something different with mail-in ballots that we don't have in in-person ballots. That's correct. So what happens a day of, I'll start there. When you walk into the gym, uh, you act, you verify who you are, sometimes with an ID, sometimes you simply just state your name, you get a ballot, you sign your signature on the uh, uh, government form, they give you a ballot, you vote, it's sealed, it's done in secret, you put it in the ballot box and you go about your day. Mm-hmm. When you do it by mail, what you do is you're in your home, um, you uh, vote, you seal the envelope, you sign your signature, and then you mail it in. So there's nobody verifying that signature. Well, what happens when those go to the county government center is they are then processed, and that processed means there is a signature match to prevent voter fraud from occurring. And it's actually a more rigorous test because somebody is actually verifying your registration signature digitally on a computer screen next to the signature that you placed on your absentee ballot. If those signatures match, they are put in a count column. And if there's some sort of question or challenge, they're set into a challenge box for later processing and further examination. Mm-hmm. So all of these, and you know, there are some ballots maybe open, for example, which spoils the ballot and that vote is not counted. Mm-hmm. There may be five signatures. There may be somebody you know wrote all over the place on it. There's all sorts of reasons why a ballot can be spoiled. But by and large, that's about less than 1% that comes in. The bottom line here, the main point of this is to say it's more labor intensive because mm-hmm. every ballot is matched with a signature verification beginning after the polls close. So but- it- so it takes longer to count those ballots, which is why we won't have them on election night or the morning after. Precisely. And right. it takes days, mm-hmm. not hours. Right. It takes days, sometimes weeks, depending mm-hmm. on the size of the state and the counties processing them through 50, 60, 150 counties, depending on the state. Right. And so as each, each county reports its count, there will be a statewide aggregate, and then you will get a daily update on how many, who, which candidates mm-hmm. picked up which votes. Right. Now, remember. The people voting by mail lean strongly Democrat. Exactly. And so the new counts that come in are going to start showing the Democratic candidate at the top of the ticket, in this case, Joe Biden, closing the gap of the vote total. And so he will get stronger every day of the count. This is just mathematical. It's just quantifiable based off of the demography of who is voting. It's nothing nefarious, but it creates a condition and an environment where people will start claiming the vote is being stolen. Because Trump is at his strongest point on the morning of November 4th, but by November 10th, the whole who's ahead could actually and most likely will flip in key battleground states that are close. Exactly. And you just explained why our listeners should care about this podcast episode format, because this because the election is happening now. And to, to flip upside down what you just said, Mike. Donald Trump's margins are going to get weaker and weaker and weaker until they are below zero after election day, day by day. And we're we're doing this episode format right now and every week until then so that listeners can know what to expect in what states and the behavior to expect from Donald Trump. And more importantly, and keep this in mind, yeah. this has changed campaign strategy. 
Because if people are voting 30 days out, mm-hmm. one is they're less susceptible to a late October surprise because a lot of ballots are already in. That's right. So a lot of that information is already gone. But more importantly, there's a what we call a front-loading of campaign activity, whether it's advertising on television, mail in the mailbox, online advertising. It's all front-loaded towards the beginning of the 30-day period, which is essentially now, and will may oftentimes diminish after the 15th of October when more ballots than not are already cast or they're hyper-narrow focused on those voters that have not voted yet. Because we're able to secure that data exactly. also. Exactly. It's really turning some conventional wisdom on its head. You know, previously, if it rained on election day, that's mm-hmm. a terrible thing if you're a Democratic candidate. Right. In 2020, that's the complete opposite. I mean, almost guaranteed, maybe guaranteed, Donald Trump will get more votes on election day mm-hmm. and then fewer total. So uh, let's unpack that for just one second, Zach. Why is it a bad thing for a Democratic candidate if it rains on election day? Because it's raining. You don't really want to go stand in line. You don't really want to go to the polls. Maybe you just, generally would rather hang out inside. And so for those folks that are sporadic voters, the likelihood of them showing up goes down. Um, and that's overwhelmingly how Democrats have voted uh, previously. And, and now it's going to be very much more by mail, early vote in particular. There's also an interesting split between voting by mail and early vote. Um, white voters tend to lean more voting by mail, and then voters of color tend to vote more in person early. There's a little bit of skepticism and distrust uh, towards, towards voting by mail. And there are some numbers that actually back that up, particularly in North Carolina. Sorry, yeah. I said to Ron okay. and Mike before the That's pod, okay. everything's going back to North Carolina for Go me. Go ahead. Uh, Zach is from North Carolina, everybody. Go Tar Heels. And uh, yeah, <laughs> right now, about 4% of the ballots so far have been rejected in North Carolina, which is an unusually high number. Um, that's in part because people have the ballots have been rejected because there has not been a witness that has signed it. In North Carolina, you have to have a witness sign your ballot as well. Um, and so... You can get your ballot cured. You can go through the Board of Elections. That's why it's critical that not only are folks sending their ballots in, but they're following up on the status of them to make sure that their votes are counted. Right. Okay. So now voting is underway in North Carolina. The very first votes cast for President of the United States in this election in 2020 are now beginning to be cast, and that's happening in North Carolina first. No other state yet. I think we have a little over 10,000 votes that have been returned uh, so far. So, uh, Mike, can you give our listeners a sense of what the electoral map looks like for this election and what states we should be watching this week? I know we're going to talk about North Carolina, but let's first set the table for the, with the national map. Sure. Let me do that first, and then I'm going to have Zach talk a little yes. bit about like which states are coming next in terms exactly. of the vote-by-mail schedule, okay? Right. because they are staggered. So there's a couple of things that are unique about uh, this map, and they're very different than they have been in the past 24, 28 years, depending on which election cycle you're looking at. The first is for most people that are still political practitioners or politicians that are running for president, the map has always come down really to Rust Belt states with the exception of Florida. There's been Florida, Ohio, every Republican, I think, since Taft has required Ohio to get elected. The Pennsylvania is kind of the three big states that carry electoral weight and heft. But by and large, it's always been about the Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, corridor in the country because so much of the rest of the state has been segmented and largely accounted for in the map to 270. This is fundamentally a different race, and there's a broader realignment uh, happening, which here at the Lincoln Project, we've been focused on like a laser beam because we know that it's coming. We believe it's coming in 2020. If not, it's certainly going to be here in 2024, and it's probably going to redefine American politics for the next generation. So what do I mean by that? Rather than the typical six or seven battleground states, 
There's more like 13 now. Mm-hmm. And even Nevada and New Hampshire are starting to move up, uh, to become a little Trumpier because of the demographics. And I, I would even toss those in. They're, they're, those are actually battleground states too. Nevada, New Hampshire, uh, they're leaning more Republican than they have. They're leaning more towards Trump than they uh, have in, in previous election cycles. So um, you'll notice that a lot of these uh, states that were never considered battleground states are like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and of course, Zach's favorite, North Carolina. These are states that are moving, and the other coincidence, or not coincidence, is that these are sunbelt states, Mm -hmm. because the demography of what is happening in the country are seeing more and more people going through this sorting process, and you're seeing far more uh, of three basic demographics which are pushing away from the Republican Party. The first are these Lincoln voters, as we call them, these white, college-educated Republicans who really see sort of the law and order messaging and the, the racial dog whistling coming from the Trump campaign as anathema to their own experience, and they no longer want to affiliate with the Republican Party. That creates a weird conundrum for the president who's trying to secure those traditional Rust Belt states with law and order and these calls to, you know, these, these racial appeals to white, non-college-educated voters. He's gathering them. The evidence is there that he is consolidating a few of these Republican votes, but he's pushing away white, college-educated votes in the, voters in the Sun Belt. The second group is older people, 65 plus, which is historically a base vote for Republicans. Now, 65 plus voters often reside in warmer climates like Florida and Arizona, huge retirement communities. And in both of those instances, in no no short order due to COVID and the COVID outbreaks in the Sunbelt states, he's losing a record number of support with these voters. Mm-hmm. And that's created another problem, and it's why it's pushed the Sunbelt more into play than it ever has been before. And the third element is not a Republican constituency, largely, but it's the growing Latino vote. Mexican-Americans primarily in states like Arizona and Texas. And then, of course, in Florida, where you've got a Cuban, Puerto Rican, more Central and South American uh, diverse Hispanic community. But the rise of all of these voters are all, uh, and they're not unique, but they're more particular and specific to Sunbelt states. Mm -hmm. All three of these are happening at a very rapid pace. And so in 2020, we're looking at these Sunbelt states in a way that we haven't for the past 30 years. Right. And you mentioned on a previous episode, I think, the flattening of the map. The stratification of the race has meant the flattening of the map, which means that there are more states in play now than we ever expected there to be in a presidential election. And this is partly due to the messaging that the Trump campaign has been using, which is the the law and order stuff, which works some places, but then sort of doesn't work or backfires against him in other places, meaning it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? Whack-a-mole is a great way to put it. And let me speak a little bit about this because you are, especially if you're on social media and really are following this closely, you're hearing a lot of prognosticators saying the race is not tightening. And what that means is on June 12th of this year, uh, Joe Biden had a rolling uh, average. We take an aggregate of all the public polls, match them apples to apples, take an average of the polls rather than one at a time. And he had a 7.2% lead in the national vote. Well, today, on September the 12th, the rolling average is 7.2. It is precisely the same. However, there is tightening happening in the Rust Belt. Well, how does that happen? It happens because of the whack-a-mole effect. It's expanding in the Sun Belt. So the Republicans that he's gaining in the Rust Belt with these messages, he's moving by a commensurate number out into the Sun Belt. So yes, it's true that technically there is no tightening, but it's flattening, I think is the best way that I can characterize what is happening. There's far fewer uh, uh, undecideds to get, but where he is 
getting some of these non-college educated blue collar voters in the Rust Belt back. He's pushing an equal one, two, three percent of white college educated mm-hmm. Republicans on the Sun Belt mm-hmm. out of the Republican column. Got it. Okay. Um, now that we've now that we've set the table in terms of the national map. Um, and everyone sort of understands why we're going to be looking at these states individually as they come online and when when folks start to vote and when those votes will actually be counted. Zach, here we go. North Carolina. Well, let's- I want to take some time uh, to focus on this state um, because they started distributing absentee ballots a little over a week ago. So can you first give us a lay of the land of North Carolina and a sense of the demographics and what the trends look like? Uh, before we do that, is okay if I just do a quick run through of the schedule uh, of the early. Oh, voting. sure. Yes. Yeah. So in in North Carolina, ballots are dropping on September fourth. In Pennsylvania, they're dropping on September fourteenth. In Wisconsin, they're dropping on September seventeenth. In Michigan, they're going out on September nineteenth. Then you've got Florida on the twenty fourth, and then you've got Arizona, which is by far the latest on October seventh. Okay, so that's latest of the battleground states that we're watching, right? And I think it's worth flagging here. That all of these all of these ballots in these critical states are going out before even the first debate happens. That's exactly right, and it's changing the nature of the messaging and the tactics that the modern campaign employs. I mean, it has to. And as we've been discussing, they benefit the Democrats because of the demography of who's voting by mail. But where traditionally we would people would be waiting and gathering as much information as possible to decide because ninety five percent of the country was going to go in on Tuesday to vote. That's no longer the case. People largely are, are, dis, are decided voters. There's very few undecideds, which we've discussed, but it is changing the way we spend, who we're talking to, what states we're talking to, in which counties we're talking to, because as Zach can also tell you, oftentimes counties are different within states and what they allow and what they don't allow. All of these pieces of this three-dimensional chessboard are part of the calculus of how you get to 270. Who we're talking to, when we talk to them, and also what medium we're using to talk to them. More specifically, right. especially in the age of advent of social media. Right. And um, a lot of this is, is a self-inflicted wound on Trump's part. You know, we, By trying to undermine voting by mail, Republican voters have decided, oh, then I guess I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And that's why in Florida, you see both the president undermining voting by mail and telling his people to vote absentee, right. uh, which is, takes a lot of cognitive dissonance to understand. Yeah. Okay. Let's focus on North Carolina now. So uh, Zach, can you give us the lay of the land in North Carolina because they have started distributing absentee ballots? Um, give us a sense of the demographics and the trends we should be looking for. Absolutely. So of the folks that have requested ballots so far in North Carolina, about 51.3% are Democrats as of our most recent numbers. By the time this episode drops, that'll be a little bit out of date. Um, and about 16.8% are Republicans with 31.6% being no party affiliation and 0.4% being Green, Libertarian, you know, other smaller parties. Um, normally, you'd be looking at a closer to 50-50 party split. So the fact that it's three and a half times greater for Democrats gives an enormous advantage in terms of the requesting. And then for, of the ballots that have been returned so far, there have only been about 19,000. So it's a small sample size and take that with a grain of salt. Um, but 57%, uh, 57.9% are from Democrats and only 13.2% are from Rep- Republicans, which shows an enthusiasm gap so the Democrats that are getting their ballots right now are more excited to vote than the Republicans that are getting them, and more Democrats are getting ballots in the first place. So, Mike, let's put North Carolina into context in the national map. How significant is it in the presidential election? So there's two ways to look at this. The first, of course, is the Electoral College number, which uh, you know North Carolina has 15 electoral votes. 
But it was also a really interesting test case in the demography of what we're looking at nationally. So let me speak to the first, uh, first, <laughs> and that is these 15 electoral votes um, become critical in the way that you piece it together with other battleground states. Uh, uh, by itself, it, of course, is just 15, um, and it's not necessarily an important piece. But when you start to add up uh, a roadmap or a strategy, which let me, let me back up here. We have a strategy internally called a strangulation strategy, which is picking off individual states as much as we possibly can that are smaller states, 15 electoral colleges, well, electoral college votes or less. It's very different than making these big, massive plays into Florida or Pennsylvania and trying to take massive pieces off the board. Like chess, it's kind of attacking the pawns, taking off as many pieces as you can and then working to use that advantage and really siphon off as many pieces as you can for the Trump campaign. And that's a big part of our strategy. It's part of what we're looking at. We are very active and involved in North Carolina, and we think that this is a critical piece along with that. To put it into a little bit more perspective, if Joe Biden wins Florida and North Carolina and Michigan, where he's already doing really well, the race is essentially over. Joe Biden will win. He'll exceed the 270 map if everything else stays the same. And that um, speaks as much to the critical nature of Florida as it does to what we call a second state, which could be a North Carolina mm. or an Arizona or another state that gives us about 11 to 15 electoral votes. Got it. Got okay? it. Okay. So yep. a little bit complicated, but that, that's, that's part of it. it. Makes sense. Now, having said that, one of the reasons why we are so engaged in North Carolina is for, for this reason. The state is unique in that it has a very high African-American population. Almost a third of the vote is African-American. Overwhelmingly Democratic constituency where turnout is absolutely essential for a Joe Biden or Democratic uh, candidate's victory. But the white vote, which is two-thirds, of course, uh, roughly two-thirds of, of the electorate, is split almost evenly between college-educated and non-college-educated whites. It is a true test case of what is happening in the Sun Belt as the growing high-tech economy, high-skilled economy, is attracting more and more college-educated workers to that state, and it's changing the nature and the quality of life and the type of politics that the state practices. So you've got a third white college-educated, a third white non-college-educated, and a third black. So if, if Joe Biden is up two or three points in North Carolina, and we'll know pretty early because it's an early voting state, it portends a very good night for Joe Biden. If he's down two or three points, it portends a much longer elongated fight where uh, Biden still stands a pretty good chance because it's still just 15 votes, but every state becomes much more critical. So every piece that Biden takes off the map, especially early, serves a unique purpose, not just building to the map to 270, but and I'm sure we'll get into this later, yeah. the potential for civil unrest is diminished considerably. Yeah. And one of the things that, uh, that somebody pointed out the other day is that the South is not the South anymore. When you look at the, the sheer amount of college-educated voters, and when you look at who's moving in, uh, there's actually a running joke in North Carolina. There's a, there's a city called Cary, which they say stands for Containment Area for Relocated Yankees. Uh, and so, you know, as that continues to happen in Cary, in Charlotte, in Raleigh, in Wilmington, in Asheville, uh, the state is changing. And one area of opportunity for us specifically is that in the Sun Belt, college-educated white voters support uh, Donald Trump still slightly by about eight, nine points. In the Rust Belt, college-educated white voters tend to support Joe Biden. So that shifting demogra demographics that Mike is talking about, there is more opportunity to pick up voters in the Sun Belt uh, as a result of that. Let me let me explain that please, a little bit more because yeah, it's a really do. important piece. Yeah. 
and and Zach's doing a really good job of explaining it. While there are more college-educated voters in the Sun Belt, they are not voting at the same rate for Joe Biden as college-educated voters in the in the Rust Belt. But there are far more college-educated voters in the Sun Belt states than there are in the average Rust Belt state. And so we see that as what we consider an offensive strategy. We see that as very tillable soil, very fertile soil for our message and our messaging. And it's been proven true for the past three or four election cycles as the states in the Sun Belt start to move more towards a center or to a more bluish hue because the politics are changing. And it's what we call this new Southern strategy, where ironically enough, it's these college-educated Republicans which are rejecting the politics of race in the exact opposite of what the Southern strategy was where Republicans were openly embracing race, the race card, in a way to build a, a, a numeric majority nationally. Which, now that we've mentioned the Southern strategy, listeners should go and Google it so you can understand just exactly how poetic what Mike is talking about, if you're not familiar with that. Before we move on, I, I think it's worth talking about the volatility in the support for Donald Trump in that subset of of college educated Republican voters, um, because it underscores how how significant the strategy is. Zach, do you want to take that? Yeah, overwhelmingly, college educated voters, Republicans, are the ones that are moving off Trump. We saw a little bit more movement earlier this year, uh, specifically around COVID, but also the protests. Initially, it was a plus thirty issue for Joe Biden. It's since become something that's broken down along almost purely partisan lines. Um, but as it becomes more and more clear that Donald Trump has had an incompetent response to the coronavirus, as he says things like he said to Bob Woodward, which are coming out. Not just incompetent, malicious. Malicious, absolutely. I think we're seeing college-educated voters start to move off. Uh, I think that Trump's campaign has done a good job keeping many of his supporters in a rabbit hole, where they're hearing pro-Trump content. They are not getting the facts uh, you know, from the Breitbarts, from the Fox Newses of the world. College-educated voters might have a little bit more exposure um, to, to different sources of information, which is helpful in persuading them that Donald Trump has been a disaster throughout his presidency, but specifically um, with his handling of the coronavirus. Okay, let's talk about the votes that are coming in. So we've seen a much higher rejection rate, you mentioned, in absentee ballots from Democratic voters. Can you explain why that's happening and what voters need to do to, you mentioned, cure those ballots or to make sure those ballots are counted? Yes. What does it mean to cure a ballot? So North Carolina is fantastic. They have this system called Ballot Tracks, which is available through the State Board of Elections. You can go there and you can check the status of your vote by mail. Um, so right now, of the 423 ballots that have been rejected, every single one of them has been rejected for the reason noted as witness info incomplete. Uh, so what that means is that somebody filled out their ballot, they didn't get anybody to sign it. It's something that's tricky because let's say you're elderly and you live alone and you're concerned about COVID, it might be harder for you to get a witness. Um, so what you can do is you can follow up with the Board of Elections. They will tell you the steps that you need to take uh, to get your ballot squared away. But it is an unusually high rate. I think that is in part because we just have more people voting by mail than ever before. And a lot of people are used to it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the first time for, you know, I'd say probably 16 out of 17 of the folks that have requested it so far, just based on the math. So okay. make sure when you get your ballot, you are double checking and triple checking everything. Because it is a lot easier to get it right the first time than go in and have to fix it. Right. Okay. And, and now the curing process yeah, is if you do find on the computer system that the state makes available that your vote has not counted or has been rejected because it was not completely filled out without the affidavit, 
then you can uh, request a new ballot or you can go into an early voting center or to the county government center and still uh, you know, participate in the franchise. You can yeah. still vote, yeah. but it requires a lot more follow-up and a lot more tracking. One more effort. So what you'll likely see is the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party identifying these spoiled ballots and then going back to these voters for a second round of getting out the vote. First round's hard enough to get out right, the vote. Right. You got to do it a second time to the same voters to say, hey, your ballot's been spoiled. Can you request another ballot? Yeah. Let us help you through this yeah. process and try to get them to vote so again. It takes a lot more work for the Biden campaign to follow up on these than, than otherwise normally would be expected. It is the new rain on election day for Democrats. Wow. That's a good way to put that it. That is a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Zach, in addition to the presidential race, there are two other statewide races in North Carolina. Um, how will the gubernatorial and Senate elections impact the presidential race in North Carolina? Well, there's a couple of things to, to contextualize, and I think Mike might might be better able to speak to how it'll impact it. But the state of the races is you got Roy Cooper, and sort of the running joke is that he wasn't actually born in North Carolina. He was born in a lab to be the perfect Southern Democrat. Grew up on a farm picking tobacco, AG for I think 12 or 16 years. He is a phenomenal candidate. Uh, Dan Forrest, who he's running against, is not a particularly impressive candidate and won't have the same level of resources to compete. It would be shocking if Roy Cooper doesn't win decisively. Uh, in the Senate race, you've got Cunningham running against Tillis. Uh, right now, pretty much every poll shows Cunningham up from anywhere from three to seven or so. Uh, there are some that are closer than others, but he's in a strong position. There is an obscene amount of money being spent on that Senate race, like maybe as much as anywhere. So uh, it's going to make it tougher to cut through the noise for everybody else, certainly down ballot. But in terms of the impact it's going to have on the election, it can't be a bad thing that two statewide Democrats are in good shape compared to their Republican counterparts. But Mike can speak to that better than I can. Yeah, Mike, I'd love for you to speak to this. And, you know, most voters and most listeners will be familiar with the concept of coattails. Which direction do the coattails flow in this particular <laughs> election? That's actually the million dollar question. And what we do know is, based off this polling, is that there are ticket splitters, meaning there are voters saying, I'm with Trump but I'm also with Cooper uh, or I'm with Trump, but I'm not with Tillis. And so that already tells you there's an opening. These voters are already not, you know, hundred percent, you know, down ballot Republican voters. That is a very target rich environment that we at the Lincoln project are going after and drilling down day after day and watching this data unfold, because that will be determinative on whether or not Trump is able to get that voter. They've already said, we're, we're not going to vote straight Republican ticket. The key is, can we shake them that seven, 8%? off of Donald Trump. Even if we get to two or three, we get to the Bannon line, which we've talked about before, which is 4% of Republican voters coming off of Trump. If that happens, very good likelihood Biden wins North Carolina. One other quick point about this, and it is a really interesting phenomenon, and that is in most of the states where uh, like Arizona, Colorado, um, certainly in North Carolina, the the challenge, the, the senator, the sitting senator is polling below Donald Trump, in many cases, far below. If you look at Gardner and McSally, they're like in double digits deep. Uh, Tillis, for example, is anywhere between three and eight, three and seven, as as uh, Zach just pointed out. Trump's at one or plus one, which means there's a there's good three to seven point spread with Republicans that are saying, well, I'm voting with Trump, but I'm not voting a Republican ticket down below. Again, 
That's a really important indicator as a strategist to look at to say, how much environment do we have to move somebody off Republican candidate? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's music to our ears because we just got to find them at that point. We know there's gold in those hills. Right. We just got to pan for it and find it. Yeah, Zach. And, you know, one thing that's important to note as well is when you look at the rest of the South, the, the handling of the coronavirus has been really, really not done well. Uh, Roy Cooper has done a better job than almost any other Southern governor in terms of limiting the spread. Now, that's going to be tested as universities have reopened, and we might begin to see a spike there. But to date, there has not been uh, a spike in the way we've seen in a Florida, in an Arizona, in a Georgia, in a, you know, even in South Carolina. Um, so that'll be an interesting thing to follow in terms of the impact it's going to have on the election. Good, because that was leading to my next question, which is sort of a compound question. I think maybe maybe a bit from each of you on this would be great. So I'd love to know what the factors are uh, that voters in North Carolina are considering and how do those compare to other battleground states? So Zach, why don't you take North Carolina first and then Mike, you can tell us how this compares to the rest of the map. I think the, the first and probably the greatest factor is going to be the coronavirus. You know, over 3,000 North Carolinians have lost their lives. Um, it's disrupted schools. It's disrupted the way of life. It's disrupted tourism. Uh, I would also add the economic impacts uh, of the coronavirus, small business closures. And then probably the third in my mind is the military. Uh, Tillis supported Trump's bill to take money away from the military at the Pentagon and build a border wall, which is, to my knowledge, still not been built yet. Still not done. No. Yeah. And I think also the president's remarks uh, about generals and about calling fallen heroes losers and suckers. North Carolina is a state with a large military population. We have several military bases, uh, particularly in the Fayetteville and the Jacksonville areas. And that certainly is going to have an impact. Now, how big it'll be is to be seen. I don't know the polling really reflects that yet, uh, but I can't imagine that that will do anything other than hurt the president and offend most people paying attention. Yeah, of course. Okay, so Mike, how does how does what voters are watching in North Carolina compare to the other battleground states that we're focused on? So we are focused primarily on this new Southern strategy, right? This new uh, in the Sun Belt, and um, so what Zach articulated is exactly right. COVID is the overwhelming issue, whether re- regardless of where you're at in the country, but there are different intensity levels. The COVID, fortunately, as an American, COVID has not impacted the Rust Belt states and the Northeast, with the exception of New York, to the same extent that has happened in the Sun Belt states. And so that the reality of what life has been for people in Arizona and Texas and Georgia and Florida and North Carolina is uniquely different than it has been for people in the North. And as a result, seeing that loss of life, seeing the overflow in hospital rooms, seeing the shutdowns of, of uh, schools or lack thereof and these super spreader events dramatically changed public opinion. And it has made a much more target-rich environment for somebody going after Donald Trump. There's just no question about it. But again, the same issues matrix really does apply. It is just different. And it is looking specifically at that white college-educated voter who is saying that this is not the right management, the maliciousness at which we are seeing the attack by the president on our military and fallen heroes, along with the acknowledgement that he knew that this was deadly and still allowed this to happen. And the fact that it has hit these communities this hard is absolutely having an impact in a way that it is not in the Rust Belt states. Yeah. You know, one one thing that I, I, sh- I left out, and I wish I'd included this earlier, uh, is the impact that the lack of college sports are going to have in states like mm. North Carolina. Duke and UNC, Tobacco Road, greatest rivalry in sports, Guitar Hills. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are no games. They're not playing in person. They're not playing in front of fans. They're not playing at all. Now, it looks like that might change because I think that it's a business and, and there's a lot of incentives for the universities, perhaps not for the student athletes to play. 
Um, but people are going to notice that. That impact is going to be felt. And that's not just North Carolina. It's going to be anywhere uh, where people love college sports. And it's something that just makes the coronavirus so real and so clear that without a national response, life is not going back to normal. Um, it's something that I think really crystallizes that for a lot of people. Thank you to Mike and Zach for being on the show today. And thanks to all of you at home for tuning in. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.